So at this time, um, Mike Lilly is going to be preaching this morning, and uh, he's going to do the scripture reading for us as well. I'm going to give just a brief introduction, and Mike, you can add whatever you want to as well. But um, we've carved out a little bit more time for the scripture reading this morning um, because Psalm 78 is going to be read in its entirety this morning. So it's going to take a few minutes, 72 verses. And what we're going to encourage you to do is to be an active, uh, meditative listener of God's word this morning. And so uh, the words are not going to be on the screen because that would, that would provide too much work for Kevin to continue to advance. So we're going to ask you simply to listen well and to invite the Holy Spirit to uh, prompt you to hear God's word read aloud. And so Mike is going to do that faithfully from Psalm 78 and then uh, give us a sermon on it. So here now the reading of God's word. morning, everyone. Let me add my happy Mother's Day. So before I read, I'm going to just set this up a little bit. So you may have heard of UNESCO. That is the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization. They they do a lot of uh, things to mark off historical sites and things like that. Uh, One of the things they talk about, though, is the importance of oral tradition Um, Oral tradition encompasses a huge variety of things like songs and um, proverbs, riddles, tales, uh, nursery rhymes. All these different things that are included in passing on the traditions of, of a people. It's used to pass on knowledge of cultural and social values. It passes on the collective memory of a group of people. And they play a really a crucial part in keeping a culture alive. Well, Psalm 78 is both an example of oral tradition and an encouragement to be faithful to the knowledge, the cultural and social values and collective memory that's passed on through it. We get really included into this as well. It's also an admonition to those who read it to pass the story to the next generation. This is a fascinating example in Psalm 78 of 1,500 years of the history of Israel packaged into these 72 verses. 60 generations that this has been passed on to, that now 3,000 years later, we're the inheritors of. That's another 120 generations, if you think of it that way. But this call of going down to pass the message to the next generation, and now we're inheritors of it. Psalm 78 is a reminder that God is faithful even when we are not. That His compassion and mercy extends to those of us who do not deserve it. He atones for our sins and makes a way for his people. See, it's a call to remember and believe and to tell and to follow God. 
And it's a reminder to do that in front of and toward the next generation. So as I read Psalm 78 this morning, I just, as Stephen said, I just want you to listen. That's not easy. It's 72 verses. And it won't be easy also because the things that are written there, as the psalmist says, are sometimes dark things. Dark things that also need to be passed on to the next generation. So if you'll let me, let me pray very quickly and... Let's turn to Psalm 78. All right. Father, thank you, Lord, for your word today. Uh, I am grateful for it. Lord, I pray that you would, in your kindness, open our ears to hear, our eyes to see, soften our hearts. Lord, and be faithful to your promise that your word never goes forth and comes back void. So do all that you intend today. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 78. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. Things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, that the children yet unborn and arise And tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose hearts were not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. The Ephraimites armed with the bow turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. In the sight of their fathers, he performed wonders in the land of Egypt and the fields of Zoan. He divided the sea and let them pass through it. He made the waters stand like a heap. In the daytime, he led them with a cloud and all the night with a fiery light. He split Rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused the waters to flow down like rivers. Yet they sinned still more against him. Rebelling against the most high in the desert, they tested God in their hearts by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he also provide bread or provide meat for his people? Therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. Fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger arose against Israel. Because they did not believe in God and did not trust in his saving power. 
Yet he commanded the skies to be opened and the doors of heaven, and he rained down on them manna to eat, and he gave them grain of heaven. Men ate the bread of angels. He sent them food in abundance. He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens, and by his power he let out the south wind. He rained meat on them like dust, winged birds like the sand of the seas. He let them fall in the midst of their camp, all around their dwellings. And they ate and were filled, for he gave them what they craved. But before they had satisfied their craving, while the food was still in their mouths, the anger of God rose against them, and he killed the strongest of them and laid low the young men of Israel. In spite of all this, they sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. So he made their days vanish like a breath and their years in terror. When he killed them, they sought him. They repented and sought God earnestly. They remembered that God was their rock, the most high God, their redeemer. But they flattered him with their mouths and lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast towards him, and they were not faithful to his covenant. Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often. It did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power or the day when he redeemed them from the foe. When he performed his signs in Egypt and his marvels in the field of Zoan, he turned their rivers to blood so that they could not drink of the streams. He sent among them swarms of flies which devoured them and frogs which destroyed them. He gave their crops to the destroying locusts, their fruit to the labor of the locusts. He destroyed all their vines with hail and their sycamores with frost. He gave over their cattle to the hail, their flocks to the thunderbolts. He let loose on them his burning anger, wrath, indignation, and distress, a company of destroying angels. He made a path for his anger. He did not spare them from death, but he gave them over to the plague. He struck down every firstborn in Egypt, the first fruits of their strength in the tents of Ham, Then he led his people like sheep, and he guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He led them in safety so that they were not afraid, but the sea overwhelmed their enemies. And he brought them to his holy land, to the mountain which his right hand had won. He drove out the nations before them. He apportioned for them a possession. He settled the tribes of Israel in their tents. Yet... They tested and rebelled against the Most High God. They did not keep his testimonies. They turned away and acted treacherously like their fathers. They twisted like a deceitful bow. For they provoked him to anger with their high places. They moved him to jealousy with their idols. When God heard, he was full of wrath. He utterly rejected Israel. He forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where he dwelt among mankind, and delivered his power to captivity, his glory to the hand of the foe. He gave his people over to the sword and vented his wrath on his heritage. 
Fire devoured their young men, and their young women had no marriage song. Their priests fell by the sword, and the widows made no lamentation. Then the Lord awoke as from sleep, like a strong man shouting because of wine. And he put his adversaries to rout. He put them to everlasting shame. He rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. He built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which he has founded forever. He chose David as servant and took him from the sheepfolds, from following the nursing ewes he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with a skillful hand. May God bless the reading and the hearing of his holy word. There is a saying when it comes to history, to the victor goes the history. That's a succinct way of saying that whoever comes out on top gets to define what the historical events are reflected as. So imagine if we, if history had turned out differently, if in the American Civil War, for instance, the Confederacy had won, the Civil War would be explained very differently than we learn it today. The lens of the writers at that time then would have been much more supportive of slavery, much more supportive of states' rights, And they would have explained the defeat of northern aggression as a validation of their just and right cause. That's how this sort of thing works. The writer of the psalm has a lens that he's also viewing history from. And is one that is full, though, of support for the God of Israel. His interpretive lens is that God is their rock, their redeemer, their savior. He is the shepherd of Israel. The writer's goal is to highlight the compassion and steadfast faithfulness of God to his covenantal people, Israel, in spite of Israel's unbelief, unfaithfulness, and rebellion toward him. The writer of Psalm 78 is is calling his people to be faithful to God's command way back in Deuteronomy 6. You may remember in verses 4 through 8, I'll read them for you if you're not familiar with them. Uh, It is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Hence, In Psalm 78, the writer commands the listener to tell the story. The story that God established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel. 
which he commanded their forefathers to teach to their children so that the next generation might know them. So that children yet unborn, think of that, that's four generations. You have a house where the grand, this is, this is the kind of house where you have grandparents live there, their children live there, their children live there. And he's looking out to the fourth generation, one yet unborn, probably a hundred plus years into the future when you think about that. Tell them so that they will hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep God's commandments. Well, why does the psalmist see this as so important, you might ask? Well, for the the psalmist, that answer is quite clear. He doesn't want them to be like their fathers. That past generations that forgot who God was. And the result of their forgetting was a people that were stubborn, that rebelled against God, who were not steadfast and whose spirits were not faithful to God. And because of it, they paid a price. So you may be thinking to yourself, all right, Mike, yeah, that's well and good for those folks that were 3,000 years ago back in history. So what? What has that got to do with me today? Well, it's a good question and worth one, one worth asking and one, I hope, to address. Well, it's important for us as Christians, more specifically those of us right here at First Baptist Church in Salem, because first, God has not changed. 3,000 years hasn't changed God. And secondly, in 3,000 years, the heart of man has not changed. God is still faithful, and we are still prone to wander. So this psalm gives us four encouragements that I think, I, I, I hope we will hold on to today. The first is to remember. The second is to believe. The third is to tell. And the fourth is to follow. So I want to look at each of those now. Some years ago, I was leading a vacation Bible school. About 115 kids were in this vacation Bible school. If you know me, there is nothing more dreadful in my thought, in my heart, than leading something like that. I will say, though, that God really changed my heart towards it. It became something I really looked forward to, but I diverge. So in one of the areas that we had, the children, it was a, it was a space almost as big as this room here, right? And in that, the children were taught about an attribute of God each day in a, in a group session. And the kids would then, were then encouraged to go home and at the end of the, you know, during the day, look for something that reminded them of that attribute of God. Where did they see God at work? They called these things God sightings, right? And then the next day they would come back and they were, the theme that year was an underwater theme. So they were given a little fish and, you know, they would write, they would write down where they saw God. So I walked in. It's a Thursday. 
There's two walls that are literally from a foot above the ground to five feet up covered in these God sightings where they had seen the attributes of God in their life over four days. Let that sink in just a little bit. What kind of heart does it take to be that aware of God? They wrote it down so that you could go by and and see, so that it would be remembered, so that it could be talked about. See, I felt in that moment that God impressed upon me the simplicity of seeing God at work in everyday life. The simplicity of seeing a sunrise, a puppy that came running up to a child and jumped in his lap and just made them laugh. From puppies to brothers and sisters to a favorite meal, these children were seeing the attributes of God in just very simple, practical ways. And it was beautiful. They saw God in the ordinary and mundane. And isn't that what we're called to do? To see God in the very average, everyday aspects of life. I love these God sightings. Really, and to this day, if you put me in front of a small group to lead it or a Bible study or anything like that, one of the first things we're going to do each time we get together is where have you seen God at work this week? What's your God sighting? Because I want you to be actively looking for God so that you don't forget, so that you remember his wondrous works all around you. And I want you to be able to tell somebody about it. Looking for God and seeing him at work is something that I think we as adults have to train ourselves to do. Knowing that I'm going to ask that question on a Wednesday causes me to look because I'm, I'm not like out of that. I'm going to have to give mine as well. And it causes me to look and see where is God at work in my life? Where do I see him in the world around me? But also to put it to memory. Because in remembering and the telling, faith is built both in myself and in the hearer. Through seeing and remembering and telling, the faith of a group is built. It's not, it's built for myself when I see it and remember it, but it's built for a group when I talk about it, when I tell others. Their faith is built that God is real, that He's active, that He's alive. God is working in our life. God is answering prayer. God is speaking to people through the scriptures. God is transforming lives. That's what goes on when we're telling our collective memories, when we're telling the stories. Where have we seen God at work this week? 
Through our collective experience, this is what we are seeing, remembering, telling, and doing. And it's building our faith, individually and corporately. See, as you read through the Psalms this summer, you're going to see again and again a call to remember. And the results of failing to remember the wonders of what God has done are going to be just as evident as you read through the Psalms. See, personally, when I, when I look at my life, I just see really distinct points where God has intervened, where God has worked miracles, where God has answered prayer, where God has tested me, or where God has rescued me. And I, when I remember these things, my faith is built. It's strengthened. And then when I face hard things, things that feel impossible, I remember God's faithfulness in the past. And it gives me courage for today and hope for the future. Because certainly if God has been faithful in the past and what he's done in my life, then certainly if he's called me to this future thing, he will also be faithful. I remember, I believe, and then I follow. And then I can look back And do you know what I have? I have another memory of God's faithfulness as he's carried me through this last thing. Another building block, if you will. Now, just so you can see that this isn't just some sort of nice idea. These are just a few years of my journals. I write this down. I write it down so that I can go back and remember. So that I can go back and see that God has been faithful to answer prayers. See that there have been really hard things in my life before. And that God has always been faithful. And in Justin looking at them, even without having to open them, there are floods of memories. This was at the beginning of the war on terror. This was during seminary. (laughs) These books are full of remembering God's faithfulness. In this psalm, it tells us that Israel did not remember. In verse 11, it tells us that Ephraim forgot the works of God. They forgot his power to save and to rescue and to redeem. They forgot his faithfulness to them. And in so doing, they stopped believing, 
They refused to follow God's ways. And in the day of battle, when things got hard, they ran. They ran and they left their fellow brothers to face the enemy alone. It seems to me that there is a difference in life between having faith and believing. So, for instance, and these overlap a lot in scripture. The the words are often interchanged, the believing and faith sort of words. But, for instance, in Ephesians 2.8, Paul writes, For grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, It's a gift from God. My salvation, in other words, my my faith for salvation is a gift from God. It's not something I can just sort of conjure up, right? On the other hand, for those who had trouble believing in him, Jesus said in John 10, if I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe in me. But if I am doing them, even though you do believe in me, I'm so, if I, sorry, let me read that again. But if I am doing them, even though you do not believe in me, believe in my works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Now, again, even though the the Bible uses these interchangeably at times, these words of faith, and believe, it seems that believing is often a result of experience. So that I can say, I have seen God at work in things before, and so I believe that God will do these things in the future. But that requires me to remember. I have to remember and then believe. I'm believing based on what I have seen God do in the past. Israel, though, did not remember. They forgot the wonders that God had done in Egypt literally only months before. We're talking like three months difference. Not a long time ago. They did not believe. They did not believe in his works or his might or his strength. They did not trust him. Look briefly at at verses 17 through 20. I'll, I'll read them for you here. Yet, it says, yet, they still more sinned. They sinned still more against him, rebelling against the most high in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God saying, can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock. And water gushed out, streams overflowed. Can he also give us bread or provide meat for his people? Now, I don't know about you, but I literally cringe when I read that. I mean, really, I do. I'm not, I'm a strong believer in prayer. And if you hang out with me much, I'll probably quote at some point Hebrews 4.16. Um, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and grace 
in time of need. Israel, though, is not coming with confidence in a good and loving and faithful God. No, no, it's kind of just the opposite. They're coming with arrogance. They're coming as mockers. They're goading God into doing something. They're not coming with confidence because they believe God has the power to work on their behalf. No, they're coming with disbelief and calling God to prove himself. They're like the Pharisees who were at the cross where Jesus is hanging on the cross and they're saying, yeah, we'll believe. Come on down. Prove yourself. I just don't. That's a scare. That doesn't make you cringe. Like that, I'm just going, how far can I back away from that? Israel did not remember what they had seen and experienced. They did not believe. So what they did not remember and did not believe, they didn't tell to the next generation. How many of you have worked sales? Yeah, so I'm pretty lucky. I feel like in my experience, I only did like two years of sales in my entire life. And that to me is very exciting. Um, (laughs) I'll just be honest with you. I'm not good at sales. Like if it's something I really believe in, You know, like, hey, I was out fishing. This lore works, man. Let me tell you about this lore that I had. It really worked. Here's this bait I used. Oh, my gosh, they took it hard. You know, like, I'm a seller if I'm a believer in the thing, right? If I've seen the results of it. But don't ask me to sell something that I don't believe in or haven't seen. I'm just not good at it. I can't sell you something. I, can't, I won't tell you about something that I don't believe in. The call of our passage today is to remember, to believe, and to tell the next generation so that they might tell their sons and daughters who might tell it to the future generation that was yet to be born. So what are we telling the next generation My guess is that we can all agree Children's Church Sunday School is a great thing. Absolutely complete agreement. I'm not arguing it at all. It's a great way for our faith to be passed on a Sunday morning. But the question is, what happens in our homes? What happens when you're in the car with your children? When you're at the park or before they go to bed, are they hearing it there as well? That was the thing in Deuteronomy. When you rise, when you go, when you sit down, when you go to bed. Is God being revealed to them? Is God's faithfulness and goodness and mercy being shown to them? What are we telling them about God? What are we telling them about Jesus? What are we telling them about our faith and why we believe? I will tell you that though I did teach my children and told them about the faith, told them about how God was active in my life, only one of my three boys is a believer today. And while that is incredibly painful and incredibly disappointing, 
I remember the testimony of my own life. I ran hard from God from about the time I was 16 to the time I was 30. And as I was running and looking back over my shoulder, I ran into God. So I trust that God can do the same for them in his own timing. I also trust that the scriptures tell me to teach my children not to save them. Because I can't. That's God's responsibility. That's God's work, not mine. I'm encouraged by Paul's reminder in 1 Corinthians 3 that one man plants, another waters, but it's God who gives growth. I say that as an encouragement to you. We are to tell, but there's no promises of our child's salvation. That's up to God. Now consider what I've just talked to you about in this last, this last paragraph. See, I remembered what God has done in my own life, my own testimony of God's faithfulness, the miracle, I would say, of my own personal salvation. I believe that God can do, so I'm remembering. I'm believing that God can work a miracle in my son's lives. And I'm relating to you that story and I'm telling you about it so that you're encouraged, so that your faith is built, so that you will continue to follow God even though you may not see the results in your children's lives today. That is what the psalmist is telling us to do to keep telling the next generations, to share it with one another, to tell about the communal story that we have as believers about God's faithfulness and goodness, and then communicate that to one another, to the next generation, to the generation that follows, to the one that's yet unborn. You remember from our passage, it calls us to remember, to believe, to tell, and to follow So I'm going to follow that last point very briefly. The whole point of remembering what God has done in the past is that we, again, have courage for today and faith for tomorrow. We tell others so that they may likewise know the ways of God through our testimony. They might be encouraged for today, that they might have faith themselves for tomorrow. We remember so that we might believe in what we believe we will tell to others who might be in the same places that we are or that we have been so that they might believe. But we nullify those words if we do not follow. We nullify those words of faith and belief and remembering if we're not living it out. Faith is not faith until it's put into action. It's not enough to tell my sons to read scripture every day if they don't wake up in the morning and find me doing it. If they don't see me doing it before I go to bed. It's not enough 
for me to tell them about prayer if they don't see and hear me praying day after day, throughout the day, in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening. It's not enough for me to tell them about being a witness to those who have never heard the good news of Jesus Christ and never see me witness my faith in word and deed. It's not enough to tell my children about doing good and loving our neighbors and offering forgiveness unless they see me actively pursuing those things. You see, this is the point. We are to remember God's faithfulness. But remembering should lead us to believing that God is faithful. Believing in God's faithfulness then should then lead us to telling others about God's faithfulness and then to living it out, walking in that faithfulness before others. Brothers and sisters, as you read Psalm 78, you see 1,500 years of Israel's history. You see both the good and the bad for over 60 generations. Throughout it, two things become clear. First, the people's regular failure to remember, to believe, to tell uh, their children of what God has done and to follow. And the results of that seem inevitable. Within a generation, the people are no longer following God. Yet there's another thing that becomes clear as well. And that is that God is faithful across the generations. Maybe that's best summed up in verses 37 through 39. Their heart was not steadfast towards him. They were not faithful to his covenant. Yet he, kind of like Ephesians, but God. Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up his wrath. Though Israel was not faithful, God was compassionate and atoned for their iniquity. The Apostle Paul in chapter 5 of his letter to Romans says it this way, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died. For us, the compassion of God and his faithfulness across 60 generations of Israel's history is the same love of God extended to us 3,000 years later through his son, Jesus Christ. So today, let me encourage you to remember all that God has done for you through his son, Jesus Christ, to remember, to believe. Let me encourage you this week to tell your story. Tell the story of God's great redeeming love, of his faithfulness to you, and tell it to the next generation. And in doing so, 
Let your faith be built up. Let your courage be renewed. And let hope be restored. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus and are curious, please come find Stephen, come find me, come find one of the folks that are sitting right by you and ask. We love curiosity here. Amen. Um, Please offer just a quick prayer. Father, thank you for your word, your promises that it doesn't go out and come back void. So please use it to accomplish all that you intend in our lives today and in the future. Amen.